Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway. Like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Hello and welcome to the Randomly Generated History Club, where three non-historians pick a year at random and try to learn things about it. I'm Anna and I'm here with my two friends, Ant and Will. Hi. Hello. And this week, we're so excited. We have a very special guest joining us. This is a Randomly Generated History Club first. Uh, we've got Paul Bavel from the excellent podcast History Rage. Welcome, Paul. Hello, and thank you for inviting me. I don't think I've ever been described as very special before, so I'm touched. <laughs> You're very special to us. Yeah. Uh, Paul and I met at the Mike Podcast Podcast Convention type online meetup thing. It's effectively this, like, you know, where podcasters go and try and uh, learn things about podcasting as opposed to history. And uh, yeah, Paul very graciously said that he'd be a guest on our podcast. And he is, of course, a esteemed board member. So uh, being involved in History Rage, which is a fantastic podcast by the way um history rage uh yeah paul why don't you describe the podcast okay so it's basically it's kind of started by accident in that we tried to do some video work uh, somewhere and we had the idea of let's grab historians and see what pisses them off so <laughs> we we invite we invite historians on and there can be you know podcasters youtubers authors museum curators people like that uh, and we ask them the one rage question which is what do you just wish everyone would just stop believing? And <laughs> so the tidal wave of just historians that come out of the woodwork to go, ah, right, this. I mean, we've done episodes like the First World War is not the poetry. Uh, the Battle of Britain was not a go close one thing. The Battle of Waterloo isn't all it's cracked up to be. Probably our biggest, most contrary, the one that caused the absolute Twitter meltdown was Spitfires. Not really that great. <laughs> but they're so iconic. I know. And they I sound know. so beautiful. I was expecting, because we've just done, we just released at time of recording, uh, last week we did the 
<laughs> the Boston Massacre wasn't a massacre. <laughs> and the Boston Tea Party wasn't really all it was cranked up to be either. Yeah. We it, it definitely wasn't a party. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, 43 tons of tea in the Boston Harbour and Britain cries out milk in thirst, you heathens. <laughs> I love it. But yeah, that's every week where we, we've got one. So Yeah, so all our listeners, you should definitely listen to this. It's a great podcast to listen to actual historians, not like the three of us just rambling on. <laughs> yeah. There's, uh, there are actual people on there who know what they're talking about. It's, yeah, and uh, we, get, very good. we get so worked up about things. So imagine what, how worked up we'd be if we actually knew what we were talking about. <laughs> it would be great. <laughs> um, yeah, so th- this is, this is going to be great. We're talking about a massive year in history, 1942, Uh so many things you could talk about. So I actually think it's great that we've got four of us covering it. Um, And of course, we always start the episode by giving a three word preview of what we're going to talk about today. So Ant, can I have your words, please? Love is propaganda. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. (laughs) Words to live by. And Will? Women fly now. Is that so a good. command or? <laughs> Could be. <Never. laughs> and then, Paula, have you prepared your three words? Spaniard, cons, Hitler. Ooh. Ooh. Okay, great. That is excellent. And well, a reasonable then... person to con. I think you're yeah. allowed to con. Hitler. <laughs> yeah, as far as conning goes. Uh, my three words are thanks for Bluetooth. Oh, okay. Yeah. Good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Sorry, I'm talking about um, 9:42. Is that not right? Uh, no, 19:42. Here we go. Okay, so today I'm going to tell you the story of Hedy Lamar, a popular actress who had a pretty unlikely and unusual side hustle. Hedy Lamar. Hedy, Hedy, Hedy Lamar. So Hedy was born Hedwig Eva Maria Kiesler right. in Vienna. No, yep. actually Hedwig. Actually Hedwig. Thought that was maybe just for Crazy owls, name. but um, <laughs> apparently it's for ladies too. Uh, and to a Hungarian Jewish family. And she was really interested in acting and modeling from a young age and eventually got some work in the, what I can only imagine to be burgeoning Vienna theater scene in the in the 1920s as an actress and then in 1933 when she was 18 years old she starred in a film called Ecstasy which was her big break but also came with a heap of controversy because of all the drugs <laughs> no um because of the other thing that you get in trouble for in movies not having drugs not having drugs <laughs> uh ecstasy <laughs> showed a close up of her face during a moment of passion, let's say. Uh, a moment, the throes of ecstasy, you might say. What, and... during prayer, her love of God? <laughs> I don't understand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and um, that didn't. some people didn't like that. There were also some nude scenes, and this was 1933, so that sort of stuff doesn't fly, even in Europe. Even that was here before, in a... before nudity, wasn't it? This was before <laughs> what? Nudity. <laughs> Yeah, before nudity was invented. Yeah. Um, But despite the controversy about her starring in such a salacious movie, um, it still gave her a lot of traction. The movie was banned in America because, you know, we're all a bunch of Puritans. But um, she still managed to make her way to Hollywood. And she meets a Hollywood studio head who changes her name from Hedwig, which is your first mistake, because what a stage name. 
um, but changes it to Hedy Lamar, puts her on a $500 a week contract, and starts promoting her as the world's most beautiful woman. Wow. A title she held until 1986 when I was born. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And she does a bunch of Hollywood films in the the 30s. She's typically typecast as this sort of glamorous, seductress of exotic origin. Exotic being Vienna, I guess. Um, But Hetty had always been interested in inventing things strangely she her parents weren't inventors she didn't have any sort of formal training but she would always kind of like tinker around on spare on projects in her spare time and when the war started she read somewhere that radio controlled torpedoes might be developed and used by the allies but the problem with radio controlled torpedoes is it's easy to jam their guidance system because you can block the frequency of the radio waves yeah, just play music loud enough, I think, and they probably divert. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like those, um, the Tokyo anti-loitering noises that they blare. Um, <laughs> Are those the ones that, like, only people under a certain age can hear? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm 50 this year. I've never heard <laughs> these. <laughs> You're torpedo-proof. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're absolutely torpedo-proof. Um, so Hetty heard about this problem with the radio-controlled torpedoes and said, OK, I'm going to figure out a way to overcome this. Because why not? Uh, so now enter a man named George Antile. So old George was born to a family of German in- immigrants in New Jersey. He flunked out of high school, a uh, great start, and uh, started to work as a composer, which I think in, is the 1920s equivalent. The worst <laughs> like, set of people to invent anything. What I does know. a composer and a beautiful woman think they're going to do? Inv- not saying that beautiful women can't invent stuff. Yeah, I'm just saying. The dangerous <laughs> comment there. Let's yeah. dive into that outrageous. one. Completely <laughs> <laughs> outrageous. I'd like to go on history rage right now. <laughs> is your rage going to be ant and his just old fashioned Victorian attitudes? <laughs> ant has been my rage for so many years. Uh, so, George Antile flunks out of high school starts to work as a composer he's really into like avant-garde atonal music i listened yeah it is it really is i listened to some of it while i was doing my research and some of it is beautiful some of it is um challenging let's say tonally um I found something that said he often injured himself when playing piano because he would like throw himself at the keys so hard. Wow. And he also used to do a thing where he would pull out a revolver from his jacket pocket and put it on the piano during the concert as a way to be like, like this or else yeah or just like ooh, look look how avant-garde i am i put a gun on the piano like i guess isn't this like the early 30s where like kids carry guns yeah that's true true. he pulls his out everyone in the audience pulls theirs theirs out yeah Um, so I don't want to spend too much time on his orchestral work, but, uh, you should look him up. He's a real character. And I do have one quick story. His most famous piece is called Ballet Mechanique. And when he staged it for the first time, he had this elaborate staging with, you know, background and all these weird instruments and machines. And one of the machines he had hired was a wind machine, which I guess was part of the soundscape. Uh, But when they turned the wind machine on, it blew so hard that the audience members had to clutch their hats and their programs and the, you know, kids had to 
clutch their revolvers. And <laughs> one gentleman in the audience tied a handkerchief to his cane and waved it wildly in the air in a sign of surrender. <laughs> so, like, please stop this music. But uh, George was undeterred, despite... Uh, I would say slightly cool reactions to people his. do that to me in meetings at work. They just uh, <laughs> wave a handkerchief on a stick. Constantly. I, I know. Stop bringing your fan machine. I think you know. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't have a business case. Well, you should just stop it. So eventually, George realizes there's not a lot of money to be made in the world of avant-garde piano compositions. Shockingly, so he moves to Hollywood to compose film scores. And on the side, he's also a writer. He wrote a murder mystery. He wrote a book of war predictions called The Shape of the War to Come. I was unable to verify if any of his predictions were right, but I assume they were all bang on. That would be a pretty interesting horoscope, <laughs> right? If it was like, <laughs> Luxembourg seizes East, East Asia. <laughs> you got, you know, you Quiet. miss 100% of the shots you don't take, right? It's true. It's true. He also wrote a memoir called, uh, and this is going to be sad for you because this title is taken by George, uh, Bad Boy of Music. Oh, So gosh. you're going to have to come up with something else. I really want that one, though. <laughs> but my favorite thing is he considered himself to be an expert on the female endocrine system, so hormones and stuff. And he wrote a book about I'm how sorry, men... Sorry, How can you be male... And an expert on female yeah. hormones. Just... Also with like less less than a secondary school education, no scientific training of any sort. <laughs> Never had a girlfriend. Never had know? a girlfriend. Just has the wind machine. And, and, In approachable music. And, totally. So, but he's an expert and he writes a book about how men can determine whether or not a woman is available based on quote, glandular effects on her appearance. Wow. And this book had the incredible name, The Gland Book for the Questing Male. Wow. The bad boy of the glands. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's, that's horrendous. <laughs> he's, a, he's a real a bad boy of the glands. Uh, fascinating character. I love this guy. Uh, so he's doing his thing. He's questing for women and composing for films. And he meets Hetty at a cocktail party. And apparently she sought him out to talk about how she could improve her shape. And then, quote, he suggested glandular extracts, but their conversation then moved to torpedoes. <laughs> that is, I mean, that is a first date conversation. I would have married her right there. <laughs> If someone approaches you and starts talking about your glands, you're going to reach for any topic of conversation <laughs> you want. Yeah, so anyway, uh, torpedoes, I guess. Um, <laughs> so with this like wonderful meet-cute in mind, she explains the problem with the radio-controlled torpedoes to him, and together they come up with the idea for something called a frequency-hopping signal. And they literally sketch it on the back of an envelope, possibly the first instance of that happening, and what they do is, so you guys know what player pianos are, the ones that play yeah. themselves. Mm -hmm. So they play because they have this perforated magic. tape magic. because of magic. Yeah. And now we'll cover your ears. Um, there's a, a perforated tape that has the, the keys that need to get hit by the piano. So George and Hetty take that idea and basically say, if you could print out a tape like that, put one copy of it on the torpedo keep one copy of it in the ship and synchronize them 
then it's a really unpredictable range of frequencies because it's got to cover the 88 keys of the piano and anybody trying to jam that signal wouldn't be able to jam preemptively all 88 keys. It's pretty cool, right? Yeah. And also, you're now giving away secret technology, Anna, so NSA's (laughs) going to come knocking on your door. Oh, God, I think they're here. (laughs) Well, this has been fun. Bye. Uh, So George tracks down an engineering professor at Caltech to help them build it. Hetty starts to work with lawyers on a patent application. Sorry, patent. That's how you guys say it. Uh, Patent. And uh, in August 1942, they patent it. Unfortunately, the Navy, the U.S. Navy is not interested. Um, And anyway, electrical controls were about to make radio kind of obsolete. And okay, fine. Some other scientists and inventors had maybe already considered this. Uh, Here we go. Yeah. (laughs) But... In the early 60s, the Navy did eventually adopt the technology, conveniently after the patent had expired. Um, And then from this launching pad, a lot of other people did experiments and, and built upon that work. And it's possible that this work on frequency hopping signals was later incorporated into Bluetooth and GPS and Wi-Fi. So right now, you are probably listening to this podcast on a technology that may not have existed without the input of the world's most beautiful woman and music's baddest and most glandular boy. <laughs> Amazing. A <laughs> uh, quick Hedy Lamar fact for you there as well? Yes, please. Um, that um, we're all of a certain nerd culture here, I will uh, I oh, will. Yeah. Uh, Except sure. so, uh, the lead villain in series two of Agent Carter, Whitney Frost, totally based on Hadi Lamar. Really? Oh. Yeah, yeah. Nice. Be- beautiful woman, actress, scientist, torpedo expert. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Creates weapons. Yeah. There was some controversy mm. because in Blazing Saddles, there's a character named Headley Lamar, and it's intended to be kind of a satire, but it really pissed off the real Hedy Lamar, who like tried to sue Mel Brooks. And uh, that that part made me sad because anybody who takes umbrage at Blazing Saddles is is no no good in my book. But yeah. I'm <laughs> overlooking that because of the other things she did. Cool. So yeah, that's Hedy Lamar. She sounds great. And George Antile. Who sounds less great. In a bit <laughs> who weird. sounds less great. But you know what? I think he's got some real good ideas on glands. <laughs> Okay, so my section for 1942, Love is Propaganda, which is also the name of my EP, buy it now in stores close to you. (laughs) Um, First of all, to understand the extent of the phenomena we're about to discuss, we need to take a step back through time, which is what we're doing already, but we're going to step further back uh, and briefly explore the history of propaganda itself as a concept. So propaganda dates back to the uh, ancient world, I'm assuming, uh, where it was used to spread political or religious views. However, it wasn't really until World War I that propaganda in a sort of modern connotations and form uh, takes place. And this the modern and systemic, systemic approach to spreading your message. And this is primarily driven by the emergent field, the evilest of all fields, public relations or PR. <laughs> uh, so PR was pioneered by a chap named Edward Bernays, a nephew of none other than Sigmund Freud. Oh, and... I thought you were going to say a nephew of the guy who invented the sauce. No, I was totally with you there, Anna, as well. I, I was coming in there. <laughs> I was going to say cousin of Mary Peppercorn. <laughs> oh. 
Yes, she, he is the cousin of Mary Peppercorn. Um, but he used his uncle's insights and his rich, creamy sauce uh, <laughs> and insights into the human minds to manipulate public opinion. So Bernays, he is actually the one that successfully branded bacon and eggs as the all-American breakfast. So he did this when working for the pork company and they're like, hey, no one's eating pork all the time. How do we increase pork? And then, so what he did, he went to 10,000 doctors, said, sign here, get some money and say, bacon's really good for you. What do you know? Uh, pork is now on the menu. Looks like <laughs> bacon's back on the menu, boys. Bacon and eggs, all American <laughs> breakfast. That uh, makes he, so much sense, just as as an American and as a person who understands PR and who loves bacon. He also uh, had the noble uh, task of trying to get women to start smoking <laughs> because they didn't really uh, gel with it. And so, and the packaging for this company was green and that was an uncool color at the time for, for whatever reason. I don't know why green is really cool, I think. But what he did was he actually got designers and fashionistas to actually start making clothing and wearing this dark green color and also pictures and newspapers of women smoking and looking very cool. Um, so he also branded cigarettes torches of freedom. Oh god, um, <laughs> nice, really, really jingoistic in his oh, way. God, I love that he made green happen instead of just yeah. changing the color of the packet. Well, apparently that was too expensive, so changing the, oh, the production line was too sure. expensive. That's why he did it. Anyway, Bernays, his influence was so profound that he was actually dubbed the father of public relations, uh, and he actually used the word propaganda himself and tried to take that word back, but it didn't really work. But um, his strategies were widely used during World War One to rally public support, uh, and they set the precedent for governments worldwide to get stuck in. In World War One, the Committee on Public Information was responsible for propaganda, and they relied heavily on the medium of uh, posters. Um, and uh, they also sent thousands of volunteers. So these men would volunteer to work for this 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 uh, committee, and they were called the Four Minute Men. And they were called the Four Minute Men because they would have prepared four minute speeches that they would give at local bake sales, libraries, you know, public forums, espousing the virtues of war. Um, oh. I got my nickname as the Four Minute Man for other reasons, <laughs> but uh, we won't go to that. <laughs> By World War II, things had progressed significantly. The now named Office of War Information had become much more significant. And they worked in lockstep with another body called the Office of Strategic Services to oh. spread messages to promote the war. Uh, now, does anyone know what the Office of Strategic Services went on to be? Oh, yes. Julia Child's employer. <laughs> Julia, yes, the CIA, <laughs> Central yeah. I Agency. <laughs> I is for information, I think. <laughs> Probably not, not quite right. No, no, I mean, that's quite right. <laughs> Whoever they are. Will don't identify them. They work in the shadows. <laughs> yeah, I've already got the NSA on me. We don't need the CIA on you. So now there's much more sophisticated. They wanted to spread the message, not just to promote the war internally, but also get the populace on side with their messages for like, you know, donating to the war effort, government bonds, you know, donating your pots and pans and like your, 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 your hosiery for some yeah, reason. Yeah, yeah. Save your nylons for your victory garden. But, but what, why? I just I don't, don't know. know what they use nylons for. Like, I have no idea what they were what they were doing with that. It just seems a bit weird that some guy was collecting them. I was like, yeah, 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 it's for the war. <laughs> <laughs> of course it is. Yes. <laughs> anyway, they also um, now worked on sort of this, what they called black propaganda, which was disseminating false information in Germany, fake radio stations, all that kind of stuff. So it's like really, really interesting uh, side of things now. So one of the key tools at their disposals was, of course, um, I mean, still posters, whereas it's very poster heavy. Um, for example, my favorite one was a picture of a man driving a car and the car has no passengers except for the ghost of Hitler. And the caption says, 
when you ride alone, you ride with Hitler. And this is an effort <laughs> to conserve fuel. Wow. For world. Oh, I yeah. see. Oh, no. I live alone. Do I live with Hitler? <laughs> yes, you do. You've been living with him all this time. <laughs> oh, <isn't it>? God. <laughs> You're fueling Hitler. Um, but what they also did was they worked extensively with Hollywood. So first of all, they were just using Hollywood and the resources there to make pro-war films and propaganda, promoting the messages, you know, denote your pots and pans, etc. Um, but they also started to have influence in popular movies that were undergoing because there was funding, there was military advisors, and there's just a general zeitgeist of like, let's, let's get on this populist uh, bandwagon. So it's kind of a sort of a meeting of minds rather than like, you know, the OSS or CIA saying, do this thing for us. It was a little bit of kind of a little bit of both. Yeah. So it's the opium of the masses. And what could be more massive than the next big blockbuster Casablanca. Mm. So Casablanca, massive film. A lot of people may not have seen it, but you should, <laughs> even though it's in black and white. Um, <laughs> and you've got your no attention span. But briefly, Casablanca is a romantic drama set in the backdrop of World War II, directed by Michael Curtiz and starring the uh, Humphrey Bogart and Ingrid Bergman, one of the most beautiful women of all time. Um, it follows the story of Bogart, who's Rick Blaine, an American expat who runs a nightclub in Casablanca, Morocco. And this was uh, sort of a center where um, people would come to try and flee the war and get back to the US. And he uh, he's sort of running the show. He's very jaded. The Nazis play a part in it as the grip of North Africa takes hold. Anyway, it's really stunning. It's this love triangle. Rick used to this, this woman called Isla, who's Ilsa. Ingrid Bergman. Isla. Is, yeah, sorry. Isla. Sorry. Ilsa. <laughs> Just, Ilsa. You got it. <laughs> oh my God, Isla. You're just carried away by the romance of North I Africa. Am. I know how you get. But she also has, she's she's actually with Laszlo. So she used to be with Rick, um, but because she thought Laszlo, who was a freedom fighter, was killed. Laszlo comes back from the dead, effectively. Rick runs off to Casablanca. He's a jaded man, runs his gambling den, and he's staying neutral, true to no one but himself. Just classic kind of goodness. So, but turns out, lo and behold... They show up in Casablanca trying to escape to America and Rick is faced once more with the love of his life. And then eventually at the end of the movie, he chooses to make the ultimate sacrifice by giving up his space in the plane so that Laszlo can escape and continue the good work against the Nazis. What's the statute of limitations on spoiler tags for, oh, sorry. <laughs> for movies? There are spoilers for this. <laughs> for I don't most... need to see the film now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, explain it so well. But, uh, you know, the jaded Rick's character arc completes and it resonated with the people of time, you know, highlighting that really sort of classic heroic tales, giving up for the greater good um, and about the ongoing North Africa campaign, etc. Some great moments and lines in this, you know, um, uh, and this was actually interesting enough. The film was being written as it was shot. Mm. So everyone on the set didn't know what the hell was going on. Years later, Ingrid Bo uh, Bergman would say that it was a complete chaos, didn't know what was happening. And they actually shot two different endings. They shot one, which is Rick letting him letting her go off and saying the famous line, apparently improvised, here's looking at you, kid. But they also filmed the other way where he gets on the plane, like, you know, here's looking at me, kid, <laughs> to Lanzar when he gets on and flies off. And, wow. Um, so... But this was influenced then saying, oh, it's actually more, you know, patriotic if he, if he gives up his seat. Exactly. A lot of people think I'm the Laszlo of this podcast. I've heard that a lot. I've heard that five or six times. Carry uh, on. I think you're the kid. <laughs> I think you are. Anyway, uh, so Casablanca, assisted by the US and was generally pro-war sentiment, portrayed the heroic struggle against fascism, communicated the need for personal sacrifice for the greater good, which was exactly on message for the US government at the time. So Casablanca, while not, is effectively a, a, 
you know, a propaganda vehicle for the US. Um, and that's, of course, where propaganda and Hollywood and the US involvement there ends and never happened again. And, until nope. E.T., right? Which is, <laughs> which is the most blatant pro-U.S. propaganda. Actually, kind of yes, because films to this day, if you are shooting anything with military hardware, you can go to the U.S. Uh, uh, Department of Defense and they will allow you to shoot on aircraft carriers, get into jets, you know, have, you know, guns, advisors, whatever it is you need. They'll actually lean in and they've got a whole sort of department dedicated to reward media relations. The only gotcha is that they want to have a little editorial control to ensure, quote unquote, accuracy, mm. i.e. censoring anything that might be bad and promote anything that might be good. Also, in terms of sort of influence and propaganda to this day, did you know that the Department of Defense has an esports team? They play <laughs> really? online video games, or nice. at least they had one until oh, there was an issue with Twitch because they were on Twitch and people were coming on and trolling them and saying... Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news... All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Stuff like linking to a Wikipedia article of list of US war crimes and stuff and saying, which one's your favorite? Like just trolling them. And so they would then ban these people. But then there was a court case because it's a government entity. It's therefore a public forum and First Amendment rights kick in and you cannot ban people for this. So they're like, we don't know what to do. And they kind of just basically shut the whole thing. Anyway. Casablanca, 1942, <laughs> love is propaganda. That's it. That's it. <laughs> Rick, Rick is streaming on Twitch. He's he's crushing orcs on League of Legends or whatever. <laughs> you don't play video games. I, I don't. Yeah, that is accurate. <laughs> you, you, you mentioned there the, uh, the, whole, the whole thing of them having that Department of Media Relations and you can go and get in a plane yeah. if you want to. Yeah. Do you know one of the films that they refuse to support? No. Independence Day. One of the really? most pro-American films oh my God. absolutely out there. But they uh, they wanted them to remove all all references to Area 51. Wow. Oh. <laughs> and that, uh, that, that cost them the support. So all those fighter aircraft that you see in there were CGI'd, apparently. I wonder is... what I wondered why Area 51 wasn't how I remembered it. <laughs> I, uh... You didn't have the say... probe, that's why. Yeah. <laughs> oh, you you would have been great had Randy Quaid not been available. <laughs> I just also can't think of a more pro US line than punching an alien and saying welcome to Earth. <laughs> yeah. USA. 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 It's so good. Oh, great. <laughs> Okay, so my slot then kind of moves nicely on from Ant's slot there where he talked about black propaganda and putting out fake, fake stuff because Spaniard cons Hitler. 
1942, a man, and I apologise to any Spaniards in your audience who can get on Twitter and murder these three people for how I screw up your language. We've given up on good Yeah, they hate us already. It's fine. So this is a man called Juan Pujol Garcia. Um, in 1942, he is brought to the UK by British intelligence. Um, he is known to British intelligence under his code name of Garbo because they give him that because he's such a great actor. And he's known to the Germans under his codename of Alaric because they actually take operational security pretty seriously. <laughs> There's no relation to that person. Either. Exactly. Um, now, again, we need to do a little bit of a step back in time here to give the background to who Garbo is. Basically, he is a Spanish ham radio enthusiast. And being Spanish, he has seen what fascism is capable of. So Does he's he call already... it Hamon Radio? Oh. <laughs> Oh, you see, oh, they, they have all the different types over there, though, couldn't it, you know? Yeah. Um, but he has got... Uh, so when, what he does, he's seen, like, fascism firsthand. He's fought in the Spanish Civil War. He's quite aware of, like, Guernica and all that sort of thing, and he wants no part of this whatsoever. So pretty much at the outbreak of war, he wanders into the British embassy and goes, Hello, I would like to spy for the British working against the Germans. Wow. And they go, Hello, No. <laughs> I mean, like, I don't know how that's worked because I've, I've gone to every single embassy. The same thing. Yeah, maybe you're just a Spanish ham radio enthusiast, but he, he turns up, they go, no, which is, to be fair, it's a pretty understandable reaction when you've got a guy who is a national of a fascist country that has declared neutrality. You might want to think twice about yeah. bringing him on. So, so he goes, well, all right, then he turns around and swans out. Uh, and a couple of days later, he goes to the German embassy. He goes, hello, I would like to work for the Germans spying on the British. And they go, come in, come in. We're, we we will have you. And uh, uh, and so they start to pay him as an agent. And he builds this network of agents uh, all across the British war effort. So you've got, like, fascist sympathising dock workers. In place. You've got, like, sympathetic secretaries, disgruntled sailors. All of these people that are that are feeding information about the British war effort back to Garcia, who is then encoding it and sending it on to the Germans. 27 agents in total he has wow. under his command. Nice. And they all have one thing in common, which is none of them actually exist. He has totally wow. made all of them up. They exist only in a small filing cabinet that's by the side of that's his radio set. Oh, was he getting like paid per agent? Oh yeah, absolutely. He's got he's got an expense okay. account that finances twenty seven agents, <laughs> and he is just brilliant. making shit up and sending it to Berlin. And Berlin are absolutely loving this. They're taking all the notes down and everything like that. He occasionally makes some real screw-ups, which if if it wasn't for the fact that the Germans knew less about Britain than he did, <laughs> it would have been royally screwed. So, for example, he claims that he has a Glaswegian docker who will do anything for a litre of wine. <laughs> <laughs> For uh, American listeners, yeah. Glaswegian probably doesn't reach to wine, first of all. Or liters, you know. Yeah. Yeah. These are, you know, I love my Glaswegian friends, but honestly, if you said, would you like a brandy? They'll say, yes, give us two pints of that, you know. <laughs> and uh, the other one that he does as well is he, uh, he seems to assume that the British Parliament basically takes the summer off and goes to Brighton. Because this is pretty much what the Spanish Parliament do. Yeah. The Spanish Parliament, closed. God, don't we wish Parliament would just close down for three months? Yeah, it would save everybody off. a lot of trouble. Um, but but the Germans, of course, 
of their best insight into what's going on in the UK is Garcia at this stage. We pretty much capture every German spy that they send, partly because we know they're coming, partly because we've got this whole deception operation going ourselves. But we managed to find that. It's also partly, I have to say, because the head of the Abwehr doesn't really like Nazis, so keeps sending the shittest agents he can. (laughs) There are three people that are arrested for cycling on the wrong side of the road while speaking Portuguese. They landed in Scotland. (laughs) (laughs) And so he keeps sending all this stuff back. Uh, Meanwhile, he's taking all this money. And then in 1942, he he sends information that reroutes an entire submarine pack to an area of the Atlantic where there isn't anything. <laughs> and it's at that point that British intelligence think, hang on a minute, this guy's up to something. So they track him down and they say, yes, come along, you can work for us. Yeah. And they bring him back to the UK. Like, Keep doing what you're doing. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this is great. Great, yeah. The great thing is, they don't even have to pay him. Yeah. He's being paid by the Germans. Amazing. For this, uh, to keep a bit of it, to keep a bit of the credibility in amongst this network as well, he occasionally has them like arrested and then shot in the Tower of London. Yeah, oh. he can get newspaper articles that are published to announce this as oh, well, sorry. so they can. The, the fake people, yes. Are being so fake people are now having fake executions. Oh, oh wow! Which leads to by about ninety, by about the end of nineteen forty-three. He is actually living off three Reich pensions that have been awarded to the widows <laughs> of his fake agents that watch this <laughs> fake shooting. This guy's stunning. Isn't he? And uh, uh, yeah, his uh, uh, so he keeps sending all sending all this stuff in. And we jump forward a little bit in time now because 1942 is when he's brought to the UK, but he's very very um, involved in the Twenty Committee. So the grand deception operation that's going to, when we go in for Operation Overlord, is going to have the Germans go, look over here and definitely mm. don't look over there. And he's not alone in this. There's quite a few people doing deception operations and other bits of sabotage. And if I've got time, I will tell you about Flight Lieutenant Richard Fletcher. This is an aside from Go. Um, f- from uh, Garbo, but this is awesome. This is the most British thing I've heard in the war. Great. Right, go. Flight Lieutenant Richard Walker... Absolutely obsessed by pigeons. Eccentric even (laughs) by MI5 standards. Okay, so bonkers. Even MI5 put him in a back room and just let him rabbit on about pigeons to his heart's consent. He's already the most British person I can Exactly, yeah. However, he manages to get the green light for his idea from a particularly drunk Churchill. Oh, God. So he comes up with this idea and goes, right... He puts a call out to the great British public and goes, send me your shittest pigeons. And <laughs> the British public respond in absolute droves. And there's like crates of pigeons being delivered to Finally, MI5 headquarters yeah. uh, and so forth. And they actually invent a new method of soldering so that they can perfectly replicate a Third Reich pigeon ring. Because an awful lot of like Abwehr communication is done by carrier pigeon. Yeah. Oh. So they then, in advance of D-Day, drop shit pigeons all over France. <laughs> and, and of course, your German agent is going to go, hello, God pigeon, God secret message. I will place it in this very nice uh, leg ring uh, here, attach that, fling it up. And of course, pigeon goes up in the air, swans off to the next field, sits down, doesn't go anywhere. That is, <laughs> that is actually brilliant. Yeah. And you've got in amongst that as well, you've got the occasional good pigeon because you can't rely on the British public to do everything right. Right. 
So what happens with the good pigeons? You put the secret message in, buggers off back to England. Wow. I love that so much. <laughs> but yes, that's a, I digress, as we keep saying on History Rage. Um, so you got in the build-up to um, D-Day, pretty much the day before D-Day, so just as everything's getting to go, they're wondering how they're really going to convince the Germans absolutely that the D-Day isn't happening. And what Garbo does is he transmits to Berlin almost the unvarnished truth of what's going on. Uh, so he's got troop numbers, he's got ship types, he's got when the departure times. He sends it just a little bit too late to really Ooh. be able to do anything to stop it. But not too late that he doesn't have to give up his pensions. Exactly. <laughs> but also he just puts a little addendum onto the end of it after he's given pretty much the entire plan of Operation Overlord. He then throws a little postscript to it with the words this is just a diversion oh my god and they have this they have this moment where they're sitting in a flat in Balham waiting for a confirmation signal and pretty much about two o'clock in the morning they get the signal back that Germany's bought it and they so they keep like a shit ton of panzer divisions in the Pas de Calais region waiting for an invasion that's going on in Normandy as they're waiting and so convinced are they, uh, is Hitler, actually, that what Garbo is telling them is true, that there is at least one panzer division, possibly even as many as four, that don't move out of that region until late September of 1944. Oh, my wow. gosh. Now, you know, late, what happens in late September of 1944? We invade Holland. <laughs> you know, we <laughs> go round those yeah. four panzer divisions, uh, you know, encircled, destroyed everything in the fillet's pocket and headed off to liberate the rest of Europe. And still they're not, mo- they're waiting for an invasion that just isn't coming. They trusted him so much. Yeah, he's, they actually, after the war, he faked his own death and went to oh, live in Venezuela. That's the yeah. only way this She wouldn't, ends. yeah. yeah. Um, he actually went to live in Venezuela, quite ironically, in amongst an awful lot of the Nazis that he spent <laughs> the war incredible. deceiving. Yeah. <laughs> that's um, he did come back to receive an OBE. For for his war work, but I believe he I believe he died before the bulk of his work was actually declassified as well. Wow. He, yeah. he died okay. in 1988, but it's just like one one man and a radio that can amazing. just divert the entire Third Reich. <laughs> is incredible. Thousands of lives yeah. just by that. Those oh yeah, like caused the war effort to be a success. Yeah, huge impact. Yeah, That's I hope amazing. they knighted all the ship pigeons too. <laughs> <laughs> That was fantastic. Yeah, that, that is amazing. I love stories like that because you just think it's they're so outlandish and just the the like gumption and the courage to do yeah. something like that and have it all come off is amazing. Yeah, well, I say like we do these things that are the the most British thing ever. I I, I think we should, should do more than that. There should be somebody sat in like the Ministry of Defence at the moment going, right, you know, shit pigeons. Let's, <laughs> let's give it a shot. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> listen, if they want bad ideas, they should listen to this podcast. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we charge a small fee as a strategic consultant, but there you yeah. go. <laughs> Perfect. Okay, this week I'm going to talk about the Women's Air Force Service Pilots, or WASPs. Lady uh, stuff. Lady, lady stuff. Exactly, lady stuff, precisely. Women what fly now. Like? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, t- tell us about their glands. Don't. Don't. <laughs> it's not... 
bang on relevant center track of the whole thing <laughs> but um okay so this is an organization of civilian women pilots who undertook non-combat missions for the u.s military during the second world war and the story is basically just packed full of like, the most amazing women who were just basically battling to be able to effectively just serve their country during the war and to overcome the sexism that was like prevalent completely prevalent at the time so so the women's uh, air force service pilots the wasps so they they existed to fr- try to free up male pilots who were allowed to be trained for combat missions and allowed to serve in those roles to free them up to do exactly that so they could go off and fly in combat uh, and it was uh, it was formed from from two other organizations. So you had the Women's Flying Training Detachment and the Women's Auxiliary Ferrying Squadrons. So these two other organizations, but they were both, and yeah, so flying and training and ferrying was yeah. what they were allowed to do, um, like I'm, speaks volumes. Yeah, definitely. And also, I'm just trying to think of those acronyms the WIF, 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 WIFTIDS and the WAFs. Exactly. Yeah, the the WIFTI and the WAFT, the WAFs. Uh, yeah, that didn't take off. Uh, um, both of which were uh, organised like totally separately um, in September 1942, and then they were then merged the following year into in, into the into the WASP. Um, and they flew in the end like over 60 million miles. They transported basically every single type of military aircraft going, and they did they the stuff they the sort of stuff they were up to was things like towing. <laughs> towing targets for live anti-aircraft gun wow. practice um, yeah. like, um how long was the tow line yeah I, I, that I, doesn't I, sound like a fun job I, like presumably like very very long right i guess it would a have really to be. incompetent gunner <laughs> yeah. yeah um they did uh, they simulated strafing missions to uh, gather data on um sort of like attack angles and things they transported cargo basically anything not facing the enemy and they were they were doing it um and over the course of the war, 39 WASP members lost their lives in accidents and one probably due to enemy action, mm-hmm. uh, although no one ever found out what happened to her. And, and the story, the creation story of it is basically emblematic of, of the whole organization and the kind of women involved. So one particular woman, in, so this woman in 1939, this woman called Jackie Cochran, she wrote to Eleanor Roosevelt, the first lady at the time, to suggest, to suggest this idea, so to suggest the idea of using women pilots uh, in non-combat missions. And Cochrane was then introduced by Roosevelt, who saw the letter and read it and acted on it, uh, to the head of the Air Force, the chief of the Air Force, a guy called Henry, General Henry Arnold, and to another general called Robert Olds, who was head of the air transport bit of the Air Force. Uh, and, um, and Arnold then, um, having, I guess, having a referral from the First Lady sort of gets the attention of that person but also he then he then does quite a lot to kind of champion the cause which i think he didn't necessarily have to do so you've got to give it to, to arnold to some degree so he then asked her to ferry a bomber from the states to great britain that was being donated uh by the us or not donated i guess like let it was lent, lent and had to be eventually yeah. paid back by the americans Thanks, that's America. right <laughs> uh, um uh to and and um, the idea was that she would ferry that over and then there'd be a bunch of publicity because of you know it would be a woman a woman flying this plane which was such a novelty uh and uh as it was at the time so like, so it worked so cochran did it she flew to america to it to england and then when she was there she actually volunteered for the air transport auxiliary the ATA. So this was the um, this is the British civilian organisation which already existed. So known uh, as the Atta Girls. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Were so, they really? Mm. <laughs> That's great. Great. Name. <laughs> so, great. so this is a, so yeah, so this is like a civilian organisation already existed, um, and she was the uh, an American joining it, and then she then c- recruited 
a whole bunch of women. So more than 25 women in the end come and join the, uh, the, uh, the Atta girls. Uh, and, um, and they all went over to the UK and were flying, uh, and, and we're, we're flying there. And, um, those women in, uh, who went and did that were the first American women to fly military aircraft. And, then, and basically, this was then a really like, formative experience for them all when they saw how, kind of how the Brits were doing it and how actually how in, like, the, the, the way in which women were allowed to do these things already in the UK was actually a step ahead or a couple of steps ahead of the States at the time. Yeah, I mean, you, you can't just like in, in a total war, you can't just give up half of the population from doing vital jobs and roles. So like sexism, unfortunately, had to take a back seat for a while. <laughs> just for a while, though. We got pretty back to it pretty straight oh, yeah. after the war. It comes back. It comes back later in the story. <laughs> yeah. Don't worry. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> quite quickly, actually. So so um, and then in the the summer of 1941, Cochrane and then this other test pilot called Nancy Harkness Love, who, who is an, another amazing woman that independently submitted proposals to the u.s army air force the, the air force at the time to allow women in uh, non-combat roles uh to um like to, to fly in europe and to, to requesting permission for that and and just yeah so ja just a note on jackie cochran by the way just to give you an idea of how cool um some of these people were so jackie cochran then became after the war she became one of the most prominent racing pilots of her of her generation cool. including nice. including the men she's super cool she broke a bunch of flying records uh, she was the first woman to break the sound barrier mm. uh she's cool. she's pretty pretty cool Don't all women break the sound barrier they always be yapping you know what i mean oh my god it's like, wow. I, we can't none of us can comment on that at all <laughs> yeah. obviously um it's dangerous you know what if, if territory me in a bar and she's like you know, don't I, I, don't I say the thing you're about to say. Okay, yeah. No, I would just swoon. I would be okay. Putty. Yeah. yeah, it's absolutely. very, very, very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and um, uh, again, and, and then she then had her own very successful business career, and then personally sponsored the Mercury Thirteen. Um, who, which was this private, which in case you haven't heard of it, it was like this privately funded group of women astronaut candidates who underwent tests in the early '60s to try and prove that women could, you know. Um, Make it could become astronaut candidates space. in the official yeah. program and go to space, which was like widely considered to be just impossible purely just because, well, you know, they're women, of course they can't go to space, was yeah. basically the level of analysis um, at the time. And so she then, you know, prior, and so she was just a pioneer and like and kept on pushing um, uh, women forward into the, in this like general aeronautical field. For the rest what of the was life. her name? Jackie Cochran. Jackie Cochran, yeah, cool. super cool. Um, and then, so yeah, a bit more on the WASP. So the WASP members, they were basically all US federal civil servants basically you know so, so they were civil service employees they weren't military personnel so they didn't qualify they didn't qualify for any military benefits like the male pilots every member had to pay for her own accommodation transportation to, to like their training sites they had to buy their own uniforms um, they should like, have invented and then killed fake husbands to get their pensions <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> um and, and the whole time their flying record was quite clearly as safe and reliable as the men's you know so there was no evidence yeah, yeah. the evidence-based building up was really like then helpful later on for, for what had the, when women were eventually allowed into uh, to, fl to fly missions um, and fly more in the u.s air force but the, the media at the time were, were absolutely not very supportive so there are pub publications like the times uh the washington post like a, a whole bunch of others 
like at different stages published um, editorials and public and allowed articles to be published uh, all urging women to like, to sort of give the jobs back to men mm. so they sort of framed it as oh, yeah. women taking jobs from oh, men I see. Um, was, just was, was, all the yeah. spare men floating around during right the war. yeah exactly yeah. so there was absolutely so, so generally the prevailing voices at the time were not were not particularly in favor you know it was a lot it was very very conservative and um, there was, uh, and there was even a column that just, class, you know, in classic fashion, accused the general in, as being, you know, as having succumbed to Cochrane's feminine wiles oh, and having been seduced gotcha. by her, yeah. uh, which yeah. is, uh, there's absolutely no evidence uh, for it. Um, and then, so what happened eventually, as as Anna, as you said, is that um, sexism returned to the story with a vengeance. So uh, the so in the in June on the June twenty first in nineteen forty four. Uh, the um, when you would have thought people were generally quite keen to maintain capacity in all these missions, given like what D Day was a couple of weeks before, <laughs> there was some, like quite a lot going on at this time, summer forty four. But anyway, the U.S. House uh, narrowly defeated a bill in their wisdom. The U.S. House uh, narrowly defeated a, a bill to provide the WASP with military status, and the organization was then wound up quite like, but they started taking steps to wind, wind the thing down, and and eventually. Um, it, I mean, it wasn't so. The U.S. Air Force did offer commissions to the, to the WASP uh, former WASP pilots, but not until 1949. Okay. Uh, right. okay. So, like years, yeah. no, this is five years later, four or five years later, and a, about 120 did uh, did accept the commissions and did then become um, regularized uh, so, uh, officers in the in the U.S. Air Force. Nice. But they were all given support and admin roles still. Yeah. yeah so they were they were still not allowed to fly, and it wasn't until it wasn't until 1993. That the U.S. Air Force finally allow women into, into to fly combat roles. I was yeah. incredible. Yeah, I was. There was a part of me that wondered if they were even allowed to fly combat roles today. Yeah, they absolutely are now. They absolutely okay. are now. Uh, and um, and same in the UK, in the British, in the Royal Air Force as well. But yeah, ninety three though is was finally the year when that happened. But the British Army only allowed women into the infantry relatively recently. I think in the past five years or so, maybe. Yeah, yeah, very, that very recently. That's right. Yeah. 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 But there you have it. There's the wasps. So like hugely groundbreaking achievement. But and, well, and, and, and all of the really sky sky depends how hard you land. <laughs> <laughs> breaking, breaking barriers yes there you go <laughs> wasps there you go nice very cool i like how we talk all of our things talked about the war but we not just like a battle i mean I'm proud in, of us. in our defense a lot of stuff happened in 42 that was basically just the war yeah. i did find there was a highway in alaska that was open there's probably a library in lewisham that you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. had a village fate or something you know? yeah we'll do that we'll do those the next time the next random time number time. generator gets on 1942 well thank you so much for joining us that's everything you'd ever need to know about the year 1942 Yes, and before we build up the random number generator, just want to thank you specifically, Paul. Thank you so much for coming along. You're welcome. Um, you have a fantastic podcast. So what's coming up in your world next? So at the time this goes out, we'll be looking at just kicking off Series 8. Wow. Congratulations. Um, yeah, so we've got... Uh, I can give you a few a few ideas of the rages that are coming up there. Yeah. Um, AI reconstruction should be burnt. Okay. Uh, <laughs> it wasn't the First World War that got women the vote. Oh, ah. um, Montgomery, not all that. <laughs> um, and the one I'm really looking forward to, which is Bletchley Park, didn't win the intelligence war on its own, you know. Oh. Uh, so that's that's just a small collection uh, of Spicy. what's coming out in uh, in series eight. 
Yeah, wow, that all sounds amazing. So all our listeners, please go listen to History Rage um, for a much classier and <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we are not that classy. I can <laughs> I can tell you and. Uh, do do have a look out it's not absolutely confirmed at the moment but myself and kyle uh, my co-host may be appearing live at the gloucester history festival at the end oh, of cool. september as well nice. with, a, with a live history road show oh gloucester history festival check it out guys. i know that Thank kind of so sounds much. like a team field trip if i'm being honest I don't know. I think we can expense this right yeah oh definitely <laughs> it's all a write-off <laughs> Okay, that means that all that's left for us to do is get our next year. So, Will, can you do the honours, please? I absolutely can. And as a reminder, we've set the random number generator to choose a year between 1000 BC and 2000 CE. And the next year is... 1712. 1712. 1712. Okay. Any hot takes Ooh. on 1712, Paul, before we let Please you Please tell go? us things that happened in the 18th century, Paul. <laughs> Not immediately. <laughs> <laughs> discovery, yeah. of, discovery of Madagascar, Fire. wasn't it? 1712, Madagascar. 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 Is that real? Or you, you, no, you're totally making it. Not real. Not real. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, that sounds about right. Don't know. All right. We will see you next time. Be sure to check out History Rage, available wherever you can find great podcasts. Thank you again, Paul. And thank you. Toodaloo. Bye. Bye, guys. Bye bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.